Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Anides, and with me is my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great. I'm so excited about today's show because we got Mauro Ranallo. We oh, got yeah. this, this incredible pro wrestling main event. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Mauro Ranallo, not on this show, not on our, our podcast. You're talking about on the show <laughs> that we're covering today. Let's oh, make I'm the sorry. distinction. I, Let's not was, get the I, fans' hopes up quite yet. Yes, and now introducing. Yeah. No, uh, <laughs> no, uh, we, you know, on this show we got the debut of Mauro Ranallo on Strike Force, and we've got this pro wrestling style main event, which is just incredible. And of course, we got Bill Goldberg, who arguably is the greatest MMA announcer of all time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know who's arguing in favor of that, but sure. <laughs> Um, well, I'm glad you're on. This is, man, I have been looking forward to this. This is going to be a very, very full show. There's a lot to get to. Uh, you got Frank Shamrock's contractual status, his uh, a forced partnership between Elite XC and Strikeforce, the, the first Strikeforce Challengers event, the first Elite XC event. Fighters not getting cleared the week before the fight. I mean, there is just a, a ton to get to. So if you're ready, let's uh, let's jump into it. All right, so we had the previous Strike Force event uh, was Triple Threat, and coming out of Triple Threat, which took place in December of 2006, we had three new Strike Force champions. Uh, th- two of those titles would be one and done with the promotion. Eugene Jackson was now the Strike Force U.S. middleweight champion, whatever that is. Uh, Josh Punk Thompson had gotten the Strike Force U.S. lightweight belt, uh, and Bobby Southworth was the first ever Strike Force light heavyweight champion after getting a decision win over Vernon Tiger White's. Uh, excuse me, Tiger White. Neither of the U.S. belts would ever be defended. They'd pretty much just be forgotten about, which was kind of weird. Don't really quite understand that. Is this like uh, the Rockers winning the tag team title and the rope breaks and they decide to take it back? Or I mean, but seriously, what, what's the deal? Did they just have no reason to ever continue these these I, belts? Or I, don't, I, I, I looked. I couldn't find anything. Yeah, I, I tried to find something, too. I couldn't find anything, so maybe it's something we'll ask Scott Coker about eventually. But whatever the reason, that this was it for both titles. Uh, and, yeah, I, I don't know if you'd put it in the Rockers class. Cause <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I, I don't know if the Rockers – it's pro wrestling, so who knows if they're still counted as champions. But uh, both Thompson and Jackson can be counted as, you know, U.S. champions. So for whatever it's worth, that that's what they got. Uh, also had Kung Lee get a, a TKO win over Jason Von Flew and Dwayne Ludwig got back in the win column with a TKO over, over uh, Tony the Freak Frickland. Uh, who we will be discussing all four of those guys um, today because they uh, they all fought on this card. So, yeah. All right. So, discussing uh, the, the fight events in December of 2006, it was announced that Frank Shamrock had signed with the fledgling Elite XC promotion to fight Henzo Gracie in the main event of their first, uh, their first fight card, which would be taking place in February of 2007. However, at Triple Threat on December 8th, before the Elite XC announcement, Shamrock had announced that he'd be fighting Phil Baroni, at the next Strike Force event. And I'm, I'm going to read an article. This is, we give credit to Ken Pishna from MMA Weekly, uh, who you used to work for, actually. Um, and this is an article uh, that he wrote at that time, and I'm going to quote from it directly uh, from December 6, or I'm sorry, December 16, 2006. Quote, Shamrock fighting for another promotion in such p- close proximity to the Strike Force date could jeopardize the Strike Force production. And injuries resulting from the Gracie fight, uh, just to interject there, it's a Henzo Gracie fight, uh, 
could preclude his participation in the Baroni fight and would most likely damage the attendance and pay-per-view purchases for the event. When questioned at the Elite XC press conference on Thursday, Shamrock stated to several members of the media that he was allowed to take the fight. His exact words at the press conference excuse me, press conference were, quote, I have a business relationship that allows that to happen, end quote. Shamrock did not respond to several attempts by MMA Weekly for comments. You know, Figure Four Weekly, which is part of the Wrestling Observer umbrella that Dave Meltzer and Brian Alvarez do, they talked a little bit about this, but they, they said Shamrock actually purchased or had some kind of ownership of Elite XC, and maybe that's why he was so certain that, this could happen, that this was allowed to happen because he may have worked a deal where he was able to pull strings on both ends. I mean, that would, that would make sense. I didn't see anything anywhere else that mentioned that, but you know, obviously Meltzer often gets the scoop. So, uh, so I don't know, but, um, Strikeforce uh, also, uh, sorry, in and this is continuing the article, quote, Strikeforce told MMA Weekly that they had notified an Elite XC representative of Shamrock's contract with Strikeforce prior to his signing with Elite XC and that Strikeforce has, quote, sent correspondence to Gary Shaw and Douglas DeLuca, both members of Elite XC's management team, and Showtime officially notifying them that there is a problem. End quote. So the, the situation would end up being resolved um, r- really quickly. Essentially, there was a forced partnership between Strikeforce and Elite XC on February 7, 2007, which was just three days before the Shamrock Gracie fight would take place at Elite XC Destiny. A press release announced the partnership. Uh, it revealed that the two promotions would be co-promoting events together in the future, starting with Shamrock versus Baroni. Uh, we're actually going to discuss this more in a future episode with longtime Bloody Elbow journalist John Nash. We go to a lot of the details on this, but very messy situation, not, not something that's ideal, uh, but, but you know, some benefits, I think, came out of it as well, including the Showtime deal. I'm glad this happened because it brought Strike Force to a larger crowd and a larger audience on Showtime. I mean, even as we are doing this show and we're reviewing these episodes or these, these shows, they were not televised, everything up until now. And so now we have Strike Force in this partnership with the Lee XC, which had worked some deal with Showtime, probably because of Gary Shaw and his boxing connection and the fact that Showtime had boxing. And we have now MMA on Showtime. And that's how it appeals to a lot of people. That's how people saw it for the first time was, what's this stuff going on? And I think that it was... If I recall, at least on the West Coast where I'm at, it was a little bit later. It didn't air live. So you kind of like saw it like later in a, in a different time, time, um, at a different time, in a later time zone. And so it was kind of like, what is this thing? You know, and so it brought a whole new set of eyes that Strike Force probably would not have gotten or it would have taken a lot longer to do. So I don't know how it happened or why it happened. I mean, we have some dots that we're connecting here. But I think it was awesome. This this turned out to be one of the biggest things ever for Strikeforce because Strikeforce would continue long after Elite XC. And Strikeforce, of course, would take over sort of their contract with Showtime and CBS. It's also interesting that at this time, Shamrock is this super hot property. He is somebody that these two promotions are investing in. They are seen as somebody who has all this value, yet he is persona non grata in the UFC. 
a lot of the UFC fans who grew up sort of after, I guess it was 2006, watching MMA, have no idea what Frank Shamrock was to the company. So I think it was really cool that Strikeforce Elite XC were trying to build a brand off this guy who actually never lost the UFC middleweight title. And it is also kind of sad that Shamrock has been written out of UFC history. He's got some mysterious feud with Dana White. I don't think anyone knows exactly the origin or the nature of it, but they do not like each other. And as MMA is trying to become this mainstream sport, okay, we know that it gets lots of pay-per-view buys. We knew that at this time. We, we knew that that it was this new sport that was super popular on the on the internet. But when you're trying to be a legit part of, you know, baseball, NFL, basketball, you don't rewrite portions of your history just because you have a personality dispute. So I think that's sort of one black mark on the whole UFC and, and, and MMA in terms of emerging into the mainstream. Can you imagine if the NFL decided to wipe out the 1985 season with the Chicago Bears just because Mike Didka is saying really dumb and controversial things these days or, you know, what's perceived as dumb to a lot of people about a variety of things going on in the NFL. It makes no sense, you know. So I, I think that Shamrock, the story of Shamrock is, will he ever get any recognition in the UFC that he deserves? No, I, I don't. I don't think so. And you make a lot of good points there. I I don't know the the story. And if we ever do talk to Shamrock, you know, maybe that's something we ask him about. But, um, you know, that, that's one of those things that I, it probably comes down. I mean, Jim Jim Ross likes to say it comes down to cash or creative. You know, that mm -hmm. it's either the way that they were building his career or money. And with Frank, it was likely money. Um, there, he actually gives an interview after this event, which we'll get to, and it sheds a little bit of light, I think, on his relationship with the UFC. So I can talk a little bit about that in, in a little while. But mm -hmm. to answer your final question there, I don't think we'll ever see him in the UFC Hall of Fame. I don't think we'll ever see, um, you know, a, a reunion of sorts. But, you know, then again, I never thought Tito and Dana would be on good good terms again. And, you know, <laughs> that happened. So you, yeah. you never you never know. So yeah. we'll see. Mm -hmm. All right, so jumping back to this on March 16th, the card for Shamrock versus Baroni was announced as a co-promoted pay-per-view event between Strikeforce, Elite XC, and Showtime. Uh, the main card bouts announced would be Frank Shamrock versus Phil Baroni in the main event for the Strikeforce middleweight title. Marilla Ninja Hua uh, would be taking on Joey Villasenor for the Elite XC middleweight title. You'd see Paul Buentello versus Carter Williams. Kung Lee versus Tony Fricklin. Victor Joe Boxer Valenzuela versus Edson Berto. Uh, Paul Daly versus Dwayne Bang Ludwig, which would be a swing bout, uh, meaning that if they had time that they would put this on, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, and then also Josh Thompson versus Nick the Ghost Gonzalez, which would also be a swing bout. On the preliminary card, you would see Jason Von Flew versus Luke Stewart, Mike Pyle versus Aaron Weatherspoon, Anthony Figueroa versus Chris Carriasso, Rex Richards versus Ray Sorrell. Uh, Seth Kleinbeck versus Sam Spengler, David Smith versus Sean Bassett, and Nick Theotikos. Theotikos? Theotikos. It's Greek, so I should know how to say it, but I don't. Uh, versus Nick Covert, and that would be it. 
Um, the final card uh, would actually be pretty much what was laid out there, so which is interesting. But on April 4th, it was announced that Charles Crazy Horse Bennett would be fighting on the card. Uh, and, and so I believe he was actually f- supposed to fight Joe Boxer Valenzuela. Uh, on April, uh, and then everything would continue smoothly until the week before the event, and this is where it got really crazy. On June 16th, it was revealed that Ninja Hua was out of his scheduled fight with Joey, C- C- Joey Villasenor as he had not passed his physical. Elite XC was working on a replacement who was rumored to be Falonico Vitali. The next day on the 17th, Vitali, who had beaten Yushin Okami, Matt Linlin, and former UFC middleweight champion Dave Manet in his career, would face, it was announced that he would face Joey Villasenor in a non-title bout. Then on the 18th, the next day, Hua gives an interview to MMA Weekly saying he was going to another doctor to get get licensed. And then finally on the 20th, Hua, who had visited, visited a neurologist, got the clearance that he needed and was reinstated to fight Villasenor for the title. Uh, apparently, Phil Baroni also had some issues getting cleared, but he would be allowed to fight, uh, which I, I believe we're going to talk about in just a little bit. But just... Just crazy. And then while all this is going on, Crazy Horse gets dropped from the event after he got arrested for uh, violating his probation. Uh, he would never compete for Strike Force. And I did want to just stop and a little sidebar there. Crazy Horse, one of MMA's true enigmas. I mean, just such a talented athlete, uh, you know, a showman, but very, very troubled. Um, has had just, just in and out of jail, lots of issues with the law. Still active. He just fought last year. Um, and I think his record's like 30 and 41 or something like that. Uh, it's hard not to think of what might have been had he been able to, you know, kind of keep his head on straight and maybe would have had a much better career. But, uh, but yeah, so I don't think we'll talk about him again um, because, you know, like I said, he never fought in strike force. But, but yeah, an interesting guy uh, and, and kind of a kind of a sad tale in MMA in, in my my estimation. All right, uh, moving on to, I always like to give the historical context of what's going on at the time. So we had uh, the UFC and Pride events that were happening around this time. Uh, also, for further context, we're going to start mentioning who the UFC uh, champions are at the time of the Strike Force event, or and then you know once Bellator starts up, um, you know we'll we'll talk about that as well as who their champions were. Um, but for this one, we're we're going to talk about just UFC. Uh, Sean Shirk. Uh, I believe his nickname was the Muscle Shark, which I think it was given to him in Japan. Pretty cool nickname. Uh, he was the lightweight champion. Matt Serra, coming off one of the biggest upsets in the MMA history, was the welterweight champion when he knocked out uh, George St. Pierre. Uh, and then Anderson Silva was still in the first year of his seven-year reign over the middleweight division in the UFC. So think about that. Anderson Silva is the equivalent champion in the UFC. And in retrospect, it's just... It's hard to fathom. I mean, what would have happened if Anderson Civil, sorry, Anderson Silva fought Ken Shamrock at that time? Or, heaven forbid, Phil Baroni. I think, by the way, you're a bigger fan of the New York Badass than I am. But we can get to that later, Phil. Uh, but what would have happened? What do you think? Who would have won that fight, Anderson and Frank Shamrock at this time? That's, I mean, that's a tough one. Frank was really injured coming into this fight, as we've discussed. Mm-hmm. But if you take that out of it... You know, Frank, if he's smart, he gets Anderson on the ground. But Anderson, I believe, was a BJJ black belt. So he was no slouch on the ground either. I, I Yeah, I mean, Anderson was just more well-rounded than Frank was. And Frank was obviously a lot older and much later in his career. Now, if you're talking about a prime Frank versus a prime Anderson, yeah. you know, it might be different. But again, Frank had really evolved in his career later on. Um, I mean, well, that's not true. He, he had evolved earlier on when he before his big UFC run. So... I, that's tough to say. I st- think I'd still go with Anderson, but uh, but yeah, that that, that would have been a tough fight. But your point is is that you're looking at the champions that Strikeforce has. You know, you've got 
uh, Gilbert Melendez with the lightweight title, uh, you know, Gilbert versus Sean Shirk would be an amazing fight. So that, I mean, that's, you know, and I think you'd probably give the nod to Gilbert over mm-hmm. Shirk, but you know, that would be close. Um, the, the welterweight belt, we didn't have one at this point. So in strike force, so nothing there, you know, middleweight, what we just discussed, uh, and then jumping up in the light heavyweight, you got Bobby Southworth. And then our next point was that rampage Jack rampage Jackson Jackson, if I can speak, had just ended the Iceman, you know, the Chuck Liddell Iceman era, knocking him out in May of 2007. So you got rampage versus Bobby Southworth. And I don't think there's a person alive. That would pick, you know, that would pick Southworth, you know, no, well, no disrespect to Bobby, who we just ran an interview with. But, you know, that, that that's probably going to go Rampage's way. It's just so it goes again to that Strikeforce story. You know, you got Shamrock and there's so such great marketing behind Shamrock and he's his personality. And uh, he's somebody who's, you know, his prime was in the UFC. He's coming back and now he's Mr. San Jose and he's super charismatic. And he's kind of got this edge to him because he's got this like thing about, you know, the way he fights, you know, he's, he's very cocky. And then you got the Anderson Silva over there in the UFC, who's like this incredible, one of the best, one of the greatest, maybe the greatest middleweight of all time. And so Strikeforce, they just were taking on everybody. It's like, we're going to, we're going to put our middleweight on display as our guy like he's going to be our guy and it's just it's just so cool to sort of look back you know it was a big hill for strike force to climb but you know they did it and, and i would argue that they were far more successful than even bellator is now because ufc at one point decided hey we need to we need to buy these guys and uh that's you know obviously i don't think bellator is for sale but you know ufc has not really had to even think about bellator as a real competitor other than maybe getting some of the older fighters to come over and, you know, offer them a lot of money to, to come over and different kind of fights. But it's just, just interesting. We've got Shamrock and Silva as the two middleweight Kings in this era. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll talk more about the, the Bellator thing later. And, you know, you make some good points. I got some counterpoints, but we'll, you know, now's not the time for that. So we'll get to that. <laughs> time. Uh, surrounding out the UFC champs, uh, champs, you had Randy, the, the natural couture. He had just become the first fighter to win UFC titles in two weight classes when he took the, the heavyweight title from Tim Sylvia. Uh, a great fight, by the way, worth looking up just to watch the, the opening part where Randy fakes a little kick and knocks Silva down with an overhand right and then just beats on him for five rounds. Great fight. But uh, anyways, uh, there were two UFC and two Pride events around the time of Shamrock versus Baroni, so we're going to quickly touch on all of these. Uh, UFC 72 took place in Belfast, Northern Ireland, drawing 8,000 fans for around $1.2 million in live gate receipts. On the card, two strike force vets fought as uh, – uh, Tyson Griffin took a split decision victory over Clay Guida. Uh, and then also Forrest Gr- Griffin got a U- decision victory over Hector. I think his name was Sick Dog, if I remember correctly. Uh, Ramirez and Rich Franklin beat Yushin Okami via unanimous decision in the main event. Uh, then the night after Shamrock versus Baroni, we had the finale for the Ultimate Fighter Season 5, which took place in Las Vegas. On the card, we saw one of the weirdest endings in UFC history when Gray Maynard knocked himself out on a takedown of Rob Emerson, who subsequently submitted due to aggravating a previous rib injury on that takedown. Well, clearly, Maynard never grew up watching the Superstation and Arn Anderson delivering a spine buster. That's what it was, right? It was a spine buster. Yeah, essentially. He grabbed him yeah. and, and, you know, he threw him down and he hit the top of his head on the mat. Right. And right. I don't know. I don't, 
I think he should have got the win. I, it was it was weird. I mean, he was yeah, never but he can't, but he can't, but he can't continue though. Yeah, you know, yeah. like it's controversial. And, yeah. and and by the way, it's not the only time I've seen that. I remember Mark Hunt, or I'm sorry, not Mark Hunt, uh, Mark Kerr, the Smashing Machine, in Pride. He picked up his opponent and like slammed him down and and knocked himself out. And the mm-hmm. Japanese guy that he was fighting like jumped up and celebrated like he'd done something. And he, I think he kind of claimed like he kind of like DDT'd him mm-hmm. into the mat. But if you watch it, no, Kerr just like is so big and strong and just like slammed him down and slammed his head first. And and so, you know, it's something vic- uh, wrestlers can fall victim to for sure. And, and that's what happened here. But uh, declared a very controversial no contest, uh, you know, and, and like I said, I think you can make a case for, for Maynard, you know, should have won that fight, but he couldn't continue either. So, uh, but anyways, in, in a fight to determine the lightweight winner for the season, Nate Diaz, another Strikeforce veteran, got a submission victory over Manny Gamburian due to a shoulder injury. And in the main event between the coaches, BJ Penn submitted Jens Pulver uh, with a rear naked choke in the second round. And I will mention, I got to work with Jens. I actually ghost wrote um, a bunch of uh, fighter blogs for him at one point for a ev- uh, one-off pay-per-view event that I worked on. Uh, super cool guy. I really liked him. So just wanted to mention that real quick. Yeah. All right. Pride uh, 33 and 34 also took place around the time that we're talking about. Um, so we're and unfortunately, these would be the final the two final Pride events, which was really sad. I mean, I I, I love Strikeforce, um, but I think if it comes down to it, my favorite uh, my favorite event or, or promotion would be pride. I just, I loved pride. I loved the fights. You know, there was guys that were on steroids and other drugs and, you know, the crazy mismatches and the just pro wrestler style entrance. I loved pride. And, and so this is kind of sad for me to talk about, but pride 33 was titled the second coming took place February 24th of 2007 at the Thomas and Mack center in Las Vegas and a big upset. So took out, uh, Antonio Joserio Nogueira, Nogueira with a knockout in 23 seconds of the first round. Shogun Hua knocked out Alistair Overeem in the first round. Nick Diaz submitted Takanori Gomi with a second round Gogo Plata in one of my absolute favorite pride fights. Did you did you ever see the the Takanori Gomi Nick Diaz fight? No, I'm gonna have to go watch it. Oh, you know, I, you I need was, to look that up, man. It I, is a I, great fight. I'm super deficient. I, I shouldn't admit this on on Pride. Um, I just, uh, you know, there's so many fights and I've gone back and watched a lot of the stuff, mostly with Fedor and that sort of thing. But yeah, the the, the freak show matches and yeah. just sort of the yeah. the rawness of it. And, you know, oh. remember Chael Sonnen talking about how Pride fights were fixed and all that? I'm just, I'm so intrigued by the whole Pride era. So Oh yeah, I need there's to go back. Ton, tons of rumors about fights being fixed and there are a lot of mismatches where guys were clearly not in the same class as who they were fighting and, you know, big weight disadvantages. I mean, it was, it was, this but it was a lot of fun. Bob Sapp got all these yep. big paydays at Pride, yep. right? Yeah, for yeah. like for nothing. Like he he just they loved him there cuz he was huge, you know, and and yeah, he's not a great fighter and he quit at the drop of a hat and so, There's yeah, one but, fight where he started like crying. I remember that. Like, yeah, that yeah, fight? I think there was he got hit with a liver shot in one yeah, yeah, or no, that might have been a kickboxing fight. Anyways, yeah. but no, you need to go back and look okay. at the Gomi Diaz fight. It is an awesome fight, one of the few Gogo Plata submissions you'll ever see. 
Uh, and then in the main event, Dan Henderson knocked out uh, Vanderlei Silva to avenge a previous decision loss. Very brutal knockout, also worth checking out. Uh, and Hendo won the Pride Middleweight title with that. Uh, the event drew almost 13,000 fans, only though only 8,300 of those were paid. However, the gate was, was well over $2 million, so definitely a very strong event. Uh, but then it was announced in late March that the UFC had acquired Pride and all its assets. Uh, the original plan was the, for the promotion to continue on with its event schedule, but unfortunately that did not happen. And according to Dana White, quote, I've pulled everything out of the trick box that I can, and I can't get a TV deal over there with Pride. I don't think they want us there. I don't think they want me there, end quote, which is a very, very telling uh, thing. This is one of those things where – uh, I can't really say Dana's calmed down a lot, um, but but he used to be even more aggressive than he is now, and and I you know sometimes it would come back to biting him in business matters. Uh, so nothing ever came of it. Pride folded soon after, um, living out on in all its glory on UFC Fight Pass. Uh, now, which is now do you do you believe that though? Do you think that he couldn't get a deal? Because I tend to think when you are number one or you perceive yourself as number one in business you systematically destroy all your competition, which means you consume them and you don't want to be running them as some sort of separate entity because then there's confusion in the marketplace. And so I sort of feel like, I mean, we saw this with WEC, we saw it with Pride, eventually we saw it with Strikeforce. I mean, I don't know, you know. Yeah, no, it doesn't work. I think he want. I think they wanted to, I think they wanted, and this was their first time, this is the first time they'd bought another promotion. So Mm. I think they wanted to, um, try to make it work, but yeah, the Japanese. I, I, I think it. I think. I think what he said there was true that mm-hmm. they didn't want Dana. You know, they didn't yeah. want to deal with Dana. If if Scott Coker, if you know, if Strikeforce had had enough money at that point and wanted to buy Pride, and they did, I mean, Coker had a great. And that's a good question because Coker obviously already had a relationship with Pride. He had already had Pride fighters uh, like Vitor Belfort come in and and fight for his promotion. So he obviously didn't have the interest or didn't have the money or didn't have the experience, whatever it was, but, but Coker, you know, wasn't a player in that for whatever reason, Dana's group ends up buying it and, and they don't want to deal with Dana, you know, and, and in the past Dana would, when he was negotiating with fighters that he didn't have a good relationship with, they would end up uh, negotiating with Lorenzo Fertitta, uh, you know, one of the owners of the UFC. So in this case, I, I, I believe it. I, I think it's exactly what Dana said. So it's unfortunate, but, but it is what it is. Uh, Pride's final event, Kamikaze, uh, they would go back to uh, the Saitama Super Arena in Japan on April 8, 2007. Uh, Vanderlei and Shogun were both in negotiation to fight on the card, but they didn't. And the card probably was the weakest non-Bushido, which they had in the same way Strikeforce had these challenger events. Um, Pride would have uh, these Bushido events. Um, that, that's what they called them. And, and they were, you know, kind of similar, you know, try to build guys and, and that sort of thing. So this was probably the weakest Pride, you know, non-Bushido event in their in their history. Uh, Jeff Monson submitted Kazuyuki Fujita. Sokoju knocked out Hikaru Hirona and James Thompson, TKO Don Fry, uh, Shinya Aoki, and Butterbean. The the boxer also appeared, and but that was that was all she wrote for Pride. So we won't be covering them um, going forward. Uh, and, and but we will continue to cover UFC events until Bellator opens for business in 2009. So it's going to be a while um, before we hit that point. You know, maybe someday if this, you know, if uh, if if the you know stars align, maybe we'll do a, a similar show on Pride. I would love to do that. That would be a lot of fun. Um, but but you know, we'll we'll see what happens. So it's not it's Phil. It's not if it's when. Okay. Well, we'll 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 see we'll see on that. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right, you're so like, we. Sorry, you're like with another co-host, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, not. I don't know that I would. Wa- I don't know that you would be the right, the right choice for that, based on the fact you haven't really watched the events. But, uh, may you know, maybe uh, you know, uh, Stephen Quadros or Boss Rutten or somebody like that. But anyways, yeah. that's that's a whole other, you know, that's a whole other thing. All right, so. Uh, we had Young Guns take place. So this was, it wasn't officially deemed Challengers, but we're going to call it a Challengers event because it was basically what they would do with this. But uh, any successful combat sports promoter has to understand the importance of developing younger talent, and Scott Coker is no exception to that. And with that in mind, he started what would become known as the Challenger Series. We're not going to be covering the Challenger events as we are as we cover these larger events, but we will mention them uh, as we go along. Uh, the first of the ev- these events was called Young Guns, and it took place on February 10th, 2007. This is interesting because incidentally, it was the same night as Elite XC's inaugural Destiny event. Now, it was at the San Jose Municipal uh, or the San Jose Civic Auditorium. Uh, This is a much smaller venue. It's non-televised. So it's not in like direct competition, but that's still a few thousand fans that that could have been home buying the Elite XC pay-per-view who you had just announced a partnership with three days before. So kind of interesting timing, but you know, they didn't announce the partnership till three days before. So this event had obviously already been booked and all that stuff. So probably too late to, to pull it. Um, but it drew 3,169 fans much again, much smaller venue. I've been there multiple times for different events. Um, there were a few ve- recognizable names on the card. Future UFC and Bellator veteran, Joey Beltron would make his MMA debut and a decision, a lot, a decision loss. Billy Evangelista who would compete multiple times for strike force would get a TKO win. Elena Maxwell, uh, who had just uh, lost to Gina Carano at the last Strike Force event, uh, she would actually unfortunately lose again. And then future UFC vet Chris Carriasso, who we'll be mentioning on uh, further in this episode because he did fight uh, at Shamrock versus Brony, he got a decision win. All right. We have finally arrived. Uh, it's time to talk about Shamrock versus Brony. We're only a half an hour in, so <laughs> thanks for staying with us. Uh, uh, but back to Shamrock vs. Baroni, very interesting as we cover this. It's technically not a standalone Strike Force event because it's a co-promotion with Elite XC. Uh, therefore, there are some fighters on this card that are technically not Strike Force athletes. They're Elite XC athletes. But for the sake of clarity and all that stuff, obviously we're going to talk about them. They did appear on this card, and you know we'll, we'll mention them as we go. Uh, but this would be Strikeforce's very first pay-per-view event. It's also their first co-promotion with another fight league. Uh, they were back at the HP Pavilion for this one, and the commentators, as you mentioned before, Mauro Ronaldo would make his Strikeforce debut. Bill Goldberg, uh, the UFC, or I'm sorry, the WWE Hall of Famer, pro wrestling superstar, and then Jay Glazer, who's known for his NFL coverage, uh, and the the ring announcer would be Jimmy Lennon Jr. Goldberg blew my mind. Uh, I just could not in a good fa- way. No, 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 in a bad way. Oh, okay. Well, in a, in a stunning way, because I I couldn't fathom, like, why is Goldberg announcing the show? Like, like what what is his qualification? And I mean, Name obviously, recognition. Yeah, Name you know. recognition. I, but I'm just sort of thinking, like, here's this guy who's super big in pro wrestling. And, you know, there's always that little rift that occurs between the hardcore MMA people and the pro wrestling people. You know, the pro wrestling people think, oh, these guys could do it if they wanted to. And the MMA guys are like, they're all like CM Punk. They can't handle it, you know. And so there's, I just think that the marketing there of having this guy, Goldberg, be an MMA announcer was intriguing to me. Now, he obviously had legit background. He had the NFL background and so he and he was a big imposing dude and it would be hard to look at him and not be like 
well, you look like you know how to fight because you're a big, tough dude. So he had that kind of credibility. Uh, but, you know, he did make me want to watch, right? That He did make me, it was another reason. What is he going to say? Is there a whole other side to Goldberg that we don't know about, okay? He did do some training. Um, apparently, he did do some announcing in Pride and the World Fighting Alliance. So he did have a little bit of background. He never really was training to compete, although he never ruled it out at the time. If the perfect offer was there, he might have, you know, tried a spear in the cage and <laughs> gassed out and right. then tapped out. Probably I could see that going. I guess Bob Sapp tried to challenge him to a fight, which would have been, even for me, I, I don't think I could have watched that. <laughs> you yeah, know, so, but, but I think that Goldberg, uh, as announcer, you know, he wasn't horrid. Uh, he had a name. He would certainly bring pro wrestling fans into it. And let's face it, this, you know, Strike Force, Elite XC, very flamboyant and very pro wrestling style of presentation. And, you know, we'll talk about it when Shamrock and Brony are coming into their cage, but, you know, they're, they're, it's very much like a, independent wrestling show type promotion and it just yeah. has that grittiness feel feel to it so i don't know of course they would end up benching goldberg later when they would do the shows on cbs you know they'd bring in gus johnson and then eventually right. when frank would uh frank shamrock would be doing commentary and so i think i think morrow may have still been there with gus but um interesting experiment no doubt yeah, and I, yeah, and I think Goldberg makes sense from what you said that it's a pro wrestling feel and you know and, and name recognition and all that stuff. I definitely did not like the idea of having both Jay Glazer and Bill Goldberg on here just for the simple of, hey, we got two white guys with goatees with bald head, you know, bald heads, so it's confused now. I and both NFL backgrounds, so actually they do have a lot in common. And Jay Glazer has has trained MMA too, but I I just they were redundant and Glazer said some very questionable things on the, the broadcast. And I definitely would not have had both of them. Um, I would have had, you know, just maybe Morrow and bill or what would have been great is somebody, something like Morrow and quadro, Steven quadros and bill or something like that. But I, you know, let bill add in color and that sort of thing, but you could, yeah, it's, he's not refined as a, as a broadcaster and, you know, maybe he's not supposed to be, but I wasn't a huge fan of it, but you know, it, again, it was what it was, but not every color commentator is going to be Joe Rogan when it comes to their you know level of knowledge of the sport and all that. So, but uh, anyway, so the official event attendance for Shamrock versus Brony ended up being nine thousand six hundred and seventy-two with eight thousand five hundred eighty-four paid. I will say, the the pro elite press released uh, af that was released uh, afterwards put the attendance at ten thousand eight hundred and fifty, which is twelve hundred almost twelve hundred more. Uh, than what was, you know, the the stats I saw elsewhere. So I don't know, nine, ten thousand people. Uh, but a live gate of seven thousand seven hundred and twenty one thousand two hundred and ten against a fighter payroll of six hundred and twenty eight thousand three hundred and forty. Uh, so we're highlights and by the way, highlights of that as far as pay goes, Frank Shamrock pulled in two hundred thousand. Mm -hmm. Phil Baroni got a hundred thousand. Ninja Hua got fifty thousand. Paul Buentello got fifty thousand. Kung Lee got forty-five. Josh Thompson got twenty. Bang Ludwig got fifteen, and Paul Daly got twelve. Would you fight for twelve thousand dollars, Phil? Uh, I mean, with the camp and everything that you. Have oh to no, do. no! Like I might do it on like I might do it if you told me like the week of. Yeah, you. Can go, <laughs> I'll give you twelve grand to go in and fight. Yeah, I might do that because that's like. That'd be some decent cash. I mean, it depends on who I'm fighting, obviously. If I'm fighting, like, 
you know, somebody of a uh, sim- similar experience level, which is zero, sure, I'd probably do that. But if I'm going in and I'm fighting like, you know, well, let's see, I'd be heavyweight weight class. So, yeah, if I'm going in fighting somebody like Paul Buentello, who's going to take my head off my shoulders? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> probably not. Because the hospital bills alone, the medical bills alone will be more than 12000 Well, I just, I just 12000 it just seems like so little money, particularly compared to you know, boxing. And, and there's, much- there are guys in the UFC that are still making that money guys on the undercard that are still getting paid that type of money. So that's which, outrageous, which is outrageous. And that's a whole other subject about fighter pay wrestler pay. I, I mean, there's, that's a whole, you know, unions and all that stuff. And that's stuff I have, I do have a, a fair amount of interest in, um, you know, we're not going to get really get into that on this show. Cause that's not what it's about, but sure. Yeah, it is pretty crazy, though. I can't see Paul Daly taking 12K right now. That's for sure. So um, that's not all of the payroll. The rest of the payroll, I'm not going to go through every name. The rest of the payroll is out there uh, if you want to look it up. Uh, the pay-per-view buy rate ended up being reported at about $35,000, um, you know, which is not great. But, uh, again, it is what it is. As with a bunch of these early Strike Force events, there's not, there isn't video of the whole show. And I cannot wait to get to the, the point in this podcast where there's a certain point where we're going to have the full video of every show. And I'm very much looking forward to that because it makes this research a lot easier. Uh, but not, there's no video of, of, of the undercard, um, but we were able to find some of the footage uh, uh, of all but one of the main event fights. Again, none of the prelims. Uh, and because of that, we don't know the exact order of the bouts. I found different uh, websites reported it differently as far as the, the order. So we're going to go in, in order of importance of basically how I would have booked the card and kind of, you know, importance based on my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't like that, sorry, but <laughs> that's how we're going to do it. Um, so let's jump into it. Undercard results. So in the opening bout, we saw uh, Seth Kleinbeck beat Sam the Sp- Sam the Ram Spangler via TKO uh, due to punches at 255 the second round. Kleinbeck was 6-3 and three heading into the fight, while Spangler, a Kung Lee product who we've discussed on a previous episode, was undefeated at 4-0. Uh, according to uh, what I was able to find as far as description, not a lot of action in the first round. The second round, Kleinbeck catches Spangler with a groin shot. Uh, once the Ram recovers and the fight restarts, Kleinbeck gets a takedown and unloads punches until referee Herb Dean steps in. Uh, this would be Kleinbeck's only fight in Strike Force. He would fight two more times in 2007, ending his career at 8-4. and four. Spangler, for his part, would be would fight one more time in Strike Force at a Challengers event in the future. Uh, he would actually fight off and on until 2016, ending his career at 9-5. and five. All right, the next bout, the aforementioned Chris Carriasso got a unanimous decision victory over Anthony Antdog Figueroa, a Kung Lee product. Carriasso was 4-0 coming into the fight and actually made a strike force debut at Young Guns in February, getting a unanimous decision victory. Uh, Figueroa was also undefeated at 2-0 as he stepped into the cage at the event, having beaten David Barrios at Strike Force Triple Threat. I, unfortunately, I could not even find a description of the action of, in this fight, so I can't uh, I can't really describe it. Uh, but after the fight, Carriasso, he would fight a couple more times for Elite XC before making his return to Strike Force at Melendez versus Thompson in June, June of 2008, which ironically would be a rematch with Ant Dog. Uh, so we'll talk about that fight in the future. Figueroa would be right back at the next Strike Force event, so we'll be discussing both fighters more in the future. 
All right, the next bout, Rex Richards, TKO's race surreal with punches at 35 seconds of the first round, so a quick one. Uh, coming on, coming into the fight, Richards was undefeated at 4-0, and he had just key-locked Kyle Levington at triple threat. If you remember, he was a San Jose Sabercats, which was the um, uh, Arena Football League team for San Jose. He was a lineman for that team, and this would be a big step, step up for him in terms of the experience of his competition as Sorrell was 6-7 and seven coming into the fight, and he had fought some, some named fighters. He'd lost to Roy Nelson and Dan the B Severn uh, while defeating MMA Ironman Travis Fulton. And I want to stop and mention right there, MMA fans, if you have not heard of Travis Fulton, you need to look this guy up. He is still an active fighter. His pro record, pro MMA record, 257, 55, and 10, according to <laughs> Tapology. That, that's right, 257 wins. He's got well over 300 fights. And just to give you an idea of how busy this guy has been in the past, in 2003... He fought 29 times, 29 times. I had to count it like five times because I kept losing count. Uh, so I, I I don't know what else to say about this guy, but Travis Fult, he fought in the UFC twice uh, way early on. It's like UFC 21 and 20 or something like that. But, uh, yeah, I don't really know what else to say, say about this guy other than hats off to a guy that's fought over 300 MMA fights, and I don't think anybody – even a I know Dan the B Severn has over 100 fights, but I don't think anybody approaches Fulton. Come on, Ric Flair did that in one year in 1987. Oh, come on. Come on. Come on. Um, but seriously, like we should do a podcast on Travis Fulton because that's amazing. How do you, I don't understand how you even get like agreed to or sanctioned to fight that many times. I, mean, I don't that, either. That, that, I don't. That is, there that was is, times he fought not even just on the same day, but then would fight twice in one day and then fight like less than a week later. I, I don't know how that happens. And so I looked it up, and he has seventy-five boxing matches under his oh. belt. Did you see that? All right, that, I, I, mean, I didn't. I did not in, see in, that. In addition, so I mean, I think this guy. We need to find this guy and sit him down and just talk to him because that is what is wrong with you. It's it, well. <laughs> I mean, I wonder how much money he's made. Yeah, I mean, that's he, a good. That's a good question. You got any money in the bank, or is he is he making five hundred bucks a fight? Well, he's you know? he's fighting on small cards. I mean, these are not. Yeah. Like I said, he fought twice for the UFC early on. If you go through, and I didn't look at every single event, but he his name doesn't come up in Bellator. He never fights in Strike Force. Yeah. You know, he doesn't fight in Elite XC. He doesn't fight in Affliction. Uh, yeah, this. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't think he's fought in the World Series. Of, he's not a, a a guy that's fighting high level competition anymore. Um, and and, he, and because of probably because of sanctioning, like we talked about, he doesn't fight as often as he used to. So, uh, yeah, I I'd, he'd be a fascinating fascinating guy to talk to for sure uh but yeah anyway so let's move forward unfortunately as with the carriasso figueroa fight i cannot find any descriptions for this uh for this one so i, I there's nothing really to say about the action uh it would be the last strike force fight for both competitors um richard would lose to future ufc champ shane carwin in another promotion and in his in his next fight before winning three of his last four ending his career at a very respectable seven and two sorrell would lose to joey beltran in his next fight then he would win his final two fights to end up at eight and nine all right, Luke Stewart got a TKO stoppage via punches over Jason Livewire Von Flew at 217 of the third round. Uh, Von Flew uh, had lost by TKO via cut to Kung Lee in the main event of the previous Strike Force event, Triple Threat. His uninspiring showing had relegated Livewire to the undercard for what was to be the, his final scheduled fight on his Strike Force contract. Uh, as with Lee, Stewart was another uh, Strike Force star on the rise 
being matched with Von Flew, so very similar there. Uh, only to know this would be a huge test for the inked submission master as Von Flew was a UFC vet with 20 pro fights. I, I was very surprised, but I could not find any descriptions for the action on this fight either, so there, I can't really say anything. And the fact that it went to the third round, I have no idea if, you know, Stewart was, you know, fighting from behind or if he dominated. I have no idea, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But with this win, Stewart seemingly set himself up for a big fight in his next strike force bout. Uh, however, this would be it for Von Flew and Strike Force as he would not be re-signed by the promotion that he had just gone one and two with. He would continue fighting for a few more years, going two and four to end his career at 14, 12, and one in 2009. Uh, as we've said before, Von Flew's place in the MMA history is secure as Von Flew choke is going to live on, <laughs> something you'll continue to hear. Uh, and I will also mention I had a little exchange with, with Jason on Twitter and I hope that he's, uh, you know, hope that he's enjoying the show. And if he's listening, much respect uh, to Mr. Von Flew. Mm-hmm. All right, moving forward, Mike Quicksand Pyle, one of my favorite nicknames in MMA, uh, took a, a unanimous decision victory over Aaron Slam Weatherspoon. Pyle, a, a potential star on the rise, very experienced, some good wins on his record. He had fought on Elite XC's first event in February, Destiny, uh, submitting Rossi Banez in the first round. He'd also competed in the in the IFL and the WC, and he'd fought both Rampage Jackson and John Fitch. In fact, I'll mention Rampage was actually his first fight, and then he didn't fight again for three years and then took on John Fitch. So how that how's that? for a uh, a one-two combination for your uh, your first two MMA fights. Uh, but it was also Rampage's first fight uh, as well, and I think it was Fitch's first fight. So it's not like he was, you know, fighting them as they are today. Uh, weather, uh, so he was 12-4-1 coming into the fight. Uh, Weatherspoon also seemed to be a star in the making. He was 7-1 with several wins uh, due to strikes. I was able to find description on this one, so I'll go ahead and, and get through that. But Weatherspoon, he made a, sh- a good showing in the first round, landed some good shots. Uh, Pyle did get a takedown, but Slam was the aggressor, uh, and it was more of the same in the second with second with Weatherspoon landing more shots and being aggressive. And then in the final frame, Pyle got some takedowns and worked some ground and pound, and apparently that was enough, even though the description seemed to uh, to be favoring Weatherspoon. Uh, Pyle did get his hand raised at the end, and, and Quicksand's got a win. Uh, this would be the only strike force fight for both fighters. Mike Pyle is probably a name you recognize. Uh, he would lose to future strike force champ Jake Shields in his next bout in Elite X before going on a four-fight win streak that would earn him a spot in the UFC. He would go on to have a very long UFC career going 10-9 and over nine years uh, with notable fights, uh, sorry, notable wins over Rick Story, Josh Neer, and Ricardo, or Ricardo Almeida. Uh, he last fought in 2018. Weatherspoon would, would go on to have a very uneven career. Um, he, in fact, he's actually had as many bout cancellations as actual fights since this bout with seven of each. Uh, he last fought in 2014, but he actually had some bout cancellations as recently as 2018. So, I don't know if we'd call him retired, but regardless, it's, his record stands at 10 and 5. And I did want to mention Weatherspoon was involved in one of the craziest finishes, one of the very few double knockouts in MMA history. Uh, you can actually look this up on YouTube. I actually watched it in preparation for this. In 2008, he took on Anthony Lapsley at a King of the Cage bout. Both fighters swung and they clashed heads and knocked them both out. They cut their heads open and both of them got knocked out. Lapsley actually came to pretty quickly. It was kind of like a flash knockout, but he actually tapped out saying he couldn't continue. And the referee was Herb Dean and he just, you can see him, he's just standing there like, what do I do? You know, mm-hmm. and uh, eventually the fight was announced as a, a no contest. Really crazy stuff. The two would actually rematch in their next fight, and Lapsley would get a uh, a first round submission via scarf hold. Scarf hold, which I don't <laughs> know what that is. I'm going to have to look that up. I've heard of it before, but I don't know what it looks like. But but kind of crazy. 
Yeah, I looked it up and, oh, that hurt. I, I, when those heads collide, that is so dangerous. And it was yeah. it just, you could just feel like, oh my goodness, this is over. I thought it was interesting that the King of the Cage announcers tried to sell it like it was some Apollo Creed Rocky moment. Yeah, like, yeah. Did you, did you, do you remember that? It was like, yeah. I'm like, come on, man. Like, did you see, <laughs> like, they showed the replay like a gazillion times. Like, dude, do you not see their heads hitting and neither of them landing the punch? Yeah, it was it was kind of disappointing. I don't know if they had somebody in their earpiece saying make it sound more dramatic than it was, but uh, it, I mean that that thing hurt. You know, it was just uh, that that was a bad scene, but definitely yeah. very memorable. Yep. All right, moving on to the next fight. Nick Theotikos uh, knocked out Nick Covert with a punch at 113 of the first round. Theotikos was definitely the fighter to watch in this one as he was undefeated at 3-0 and coming into the fight while Nick the Brick Covert was 2-3. and uh, and for the action itself, after circling one another, the fighters clinch along the fence. Theotikos gets separation and starts throwing punches, and he knocks out Covert pretty quickly. And it's a pretty bad knockout from what I read. Paramedics ended up having to come into the ring to administer aid uh, to the brick. Uh, Theotikos would fight one more time in Strike Force, taking on Luke Rockhold in 2008, so he'll come up again in the future. Covert, for his part, would fight one more time in MMA, going out on a win to end his career with a record of 3-4. and four. All right, next fight, Edson Little Tiger Berto submitted Victor Joe Boxer Valenzuela with a heel hook at 47 seconds of the first round. Uh, and as a reminder, this was originally supposed to be a rematch between Joe Boxer and Crazy Horse, uh, who had fought to a draw in 2005, but the latter had to drop out after getting arrested. Step, stepping up to take his place was Edson Berto. Uh, Berto had fought at Elite XC Destiny, getting a win via punches over John Shackelford, bringing his record to 11-3-1 as he entered the cage against Valenzuela. Uh, for his part, Joe Boxer was 5-1. One and two coming into the fight. Pretty quick fight. After landing a couple strikes or a couple kicks, uh, Berto gets a good takedown. And then while in butterfly guard, he drops to his back and grabs a heel hook. Valenzuela tries to fight and defend against it briefly, but he ultimately taps out. So a good win uh, for Little Little Tiger. Neither fighter would fight in strike force again. Uh, it's my guess that that uh, Berto was under Elite XC contract since he had fought with them previously uh, and would not fight for strike force again. Uh, they would both compete. I'm sorry, uh, Berto would actually compete in both Elite XC and Bellator after this ending his career in 2014 with a 17-12-1 record. Valenzuela would beat Crazy Horse Bennett in his next bout, so he would get to take him back on, uh, and he would continue competing until 2015, ending his career with a very respectable 14-6-2 record. And it's worth mentioning, uh, Berto had a very solid family history in combat sports. His father had competed at UFC 10, uh, while his brother was is a very successful pro boxer. He fought uh, Floyd Mayweather, uh, Robert the Ghost Guerrero, big names on his re resume, uh, Andre Berto, so very well-known boxer. And then their sister, Revelina, uh, also competed in MMA and was a cast member uh, on uh, the, the uh, season 18 of The Ultimate Fighter in 2013. Mm -hmm. That's pretty crazy that you'd have that many successful high-level fighters coming in one family. Um, I think we'll probably talk about it at the next one, but I think Berto did actually compete against KJ Nunes at a, at a strike force show. And we'll, we'll talk more about KJ, one of the early challengers things that I, I did. I did look him up a little bit to try to figure out his Andre Berto connection. And I did see that he did take on KJ in July, 2007. Yeah, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree with you. It was actually a, sh a show XC event, so it was okay. actually under the Elite XC banner. So the show XC, but it's interesting you bring this up. Show XC would do, or Elite XC would do uh, something that Showtime has done with its pro boxing leagues, where basically they'll do again these developer events 
And 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 so Elite XC would do show XC events where they would showcase you know fighters that they were trying to build up, and so yeah, uh, uh, Berto and Nunes would actually fight, uh, and so uh, yeah, good. But it's, I'm glad you brought it up. And Nunes has is, is actually agreed to come on our podcast, so we're planning to talk to him in the future as well. Um, so that so that should be fun. That's awesome. All right, next bout, David Smith knocked out Sean Bassett with a punch at 123 of the second round, and this was a swing bout. Actually, didn't take place until after the main event, but we're going to go ahead and review it here. Uh, if this sounds familiar to you, it should because it was a rematch of a bout from Triple Threat, which Smith also had won. Uh, so they, he got a rematch. Uh, he'd actually won that one via third round knockout. So he'd actually done better in this one, got a second round knockout. Uh, he had lost his next bout to Andrew Montanez at Young Guns. Bassett, you know, clearly gunning for revenge here. No description of the action is available. Um, as, uh, but as with the Edson Valenzuela bout, this would be it for both Smith and Bassett in strike force. Uh, Smith would win two more bouts in his career, ending at five and one in 2009. Bassett would be done after this fight, uh, ending his run uh, at 0 and four. Unfortunately, never getting a, a pro MMA win. All right, we have arrived at the main event, and uh, we are, are 51 minutes into this. Uh, for what it's worth. So uh, let's go ahead and, and jump in. Uh, Paul Semtex Daily, TKO Dwayne Bang Ludwig uh, at, uh, I'm sorry, I jumped off there, at with punches at 32 seconds of the second round. As with the previous bout, uh, this would be a swing bout. And, and this was, I just, I don't understand, as I mentioned earlier, I don't really understand. Um, you got two bangers that are almost assuredly going to get after it. Why not? Uh, find a place for them on this card. I, I don't understand this. For those that don't understand swing bouts, I'm very glad that they don't have them pretty much. I can't say they don't have them anywhere in MMA, but I don't think you hear about swing bouts uh, in, uh, in in the UFC or Bellator anymore because it's that's tough. I mean, you get fighters that train, and then they may or may not get to fight, and then you have a situation where you know, they end up fighting after the main card. So I don't hear much about swing bouts anymore, so I don't think they happen as often, which I'm, I'm, I'm glad about. Uh, but both Semtex and Bang were, were very experienced coming into this bout. Um, both of them had, had some some big fights on their on their revenue. Or I'm, I'm sorry, on their resume. Uh, Daly was a U.K. fighter, 14-6-2 at the time. He had won three of his last four, while Ludwig at 15-6 and six had won uh, his previous strike force bout against Tony the Freak Frickland at triple threat. Ludwig had also gotten a big uh, gotten a win at a Ring of Fire event in Colorado in February. Uh, so both fighters were riding some momentum coming into this bout. Now, this is the, the first bout on the card where I could find... Um uh, find some, find a, a video of the of the of the fight. So, quick note: Daly was signed with Elite XC. Um, so yeah, just a, uh, he was actually was an Elite XC fighter. So you actually had an Elite XC versus a Strike Force fighter here, uh, which was interesting. The first round you saw a real feeling out process. Daly surprisingly went for three takedowns. Uh, he only landed the last one. Uh, Bang, which Bang got right up from. He I gotta say Ludwig showed some really good takedown defense. Uh, really strong takedown D in this in this fight. Uh, the crowd booed here and there because of the lack of the striking action. Uh, although I will mention this again, coming this that this fight came after the main event, they were probably a little bit tired and you know ready to go home. Uh, but but they did get some boos. Uh, but I'd give the first round to Daly for being the aggressor and getting that one takedown. Uh, it was over pretty quickly in the second. Semtex dropped Bang with a right hand and then followed up with some strikes on the ground before the ref stepped in. Kind of a quick stoppage, maybe a little bit questionable. Uh, but Bang didn't complain. So Daly gets the win, and, and but but uh you know probably could have been a little bit more of a uh you know a, a fireworks type fight, but this is kind of one of those 
Styles makes fights and they kind of cancel each other out a little bit here, probably a little more cautious than we normally see. But but big win for Daly, regardless of how you look at it. I thought it was stopped a little bit early, but we do know that Paul Daly's super explosive and in that situation, probably nothing's going to change. So, but I did feel like, oh man, I want to see a couple more seconds here to see what would what would happen. I, I actually really like Paul Daly. I know he's got a kind of a controversial reputation, certainly over the years with all the sort of, you know, temperament and, and issues and things that he's done and sort of difficulties he's had with various promoters. But, um, you know, as just a fan, yeah, he's explosive. He could knock you out with one left hook. He had this attitude. He had that like badass British accent. You know, he's cocky, just like a good charismatic persona for a, a fighter, very much like Frank Bruno as a heavyweight in boxing. And, uh, you know, he was just wicked on his feet. And we saw sort of flashes at this. Of course, here, this is like he's very early on in his career. So we would learn more about his power in future fights. But uh, he was just he could destroy you with his hands. But on the ground, it's like the worst dude on the ground. I mean, that, that was the place to take him. If I mean, that's where Josh Koscheck took him, which led to, you know, Daly just being so frustrated with that and him throwing yeah. that late punch after the, after the bell. But, um, you know, Paul, I think could have been a really good boxer too, full-time, full-time boxer. Cause he's just really good. Uh, you know, basically as a striker. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad he stayed in MMA because he's I, he is a guy I definitely like to watch. Um, I, he's very entertaining, and his fights are pretty much always entertaining, other than that Koscheck one. Yeah. Um, but both fighters would be back in strike force, though we wouldn't see Semtex inside the X, the hexagon again until 2010. Uh, Ludwig would would main event a strike force event the next year, so we'll be, be discussing both fighters in depth in the future. And and as I've said before, Ludwig has agreed to to appear on the podcast, and I'm hoping that that uh, we can have Daly on as as well because it'd be it'd be a lot of fun to. Ho- talk to him all right next fight josh the punk thompson submits nick the ghost gonzalez with a rear naked choke at 142 of the first round thompson of course was coming off unanimous decision victory over nam fan at triple threat uh he was on a four fight win streak after losing his title fight against clay guida at shamrock versus gracie uh but he was clearly earning his way towards another title shot uh gonzalez was also Pretty experienced, 12 and 4, though his, his level of competition was not what Thompson had faced. Uh, he was 26 years old, known for his boxing abilities, and he actually had a 3 1 and 1 pro boxing record coming into this bout, but it would not last long. Uh, Thompson starts with a jab, high kick, and then a Superman punch, then gets a takedown, works his mat gain, eventually getting into position for a rear naked choke, sinking it in, and getting the tap. So uh, pretty quick there. Coming out of the fight, Thompson was definitely in line for his title shot. He would fight one more time before finally getting it. We'll be talking about him in the future, and he's, of course, agreed to appear. I say, of course, uh, as I've mentioned before, he's also agreed to appear on the show and looking forward to, to talking to him in the future. Uh, Gonzalez had a very, very uh, – he's had a very questionable career since this bout. Uh, he fought fought one more time in, in Strike Force at a Challengers event in 2011. Uh, he would fight for Elia XC, and would, he would actually go on to compete on the very first Bellator card uh and then in 2014 we would see the ghost with three straight bouts canceled the last one scheduled for september 26th uh would be would be dropped when gonzalez actually fainted while cutting weight and then almost exactly a year later the ghost would come in over 16 pounds heavy for a lightweight bout against ryan couture in bellator Uh, that's that's right he was actually over the welterweight limit they wouldn't have allowed I me mean, unless the, the his competitor his uh his uh 
the you know the other fighter unless they agreed he wouldn't have even made the welterweight limit uh for a lightweight fight and that fight would be canceled to the one with couture since then he's fought in MMA, which I, I don't remember ever hearing about a 16 pound weight miss that I, that I, as at least as far as the major, the major leagues, I don't remember hearing that. Uh, but since then he's fought in MMA a couple more times and in bare knuckle fighting too. Uh, Gonzalez actually had a bout scheduled for May of 2020, um, but that was canceled due to COVID. So technically he's still an active fighter, but, uh, but kind of a crazy, kind of a crazy path after this event. All right, uh, the headhunter Paul Buentello took on Carter Williams, uh, and he knocked him out with a punch at 10 seconds of the second round. Carter was a very well-regarded kickboxer. He'd actually won the 2003 K1 World Grand Prix Tournament in Las Vegas. Uh, he was a native of Modesto, California. He was an 18-to-1 underdog that night uh, in Vegas, beating six-time world kickboxing champion Rick the Jet Rufus and Michael the Black Sniper McDonald to capture North America's most coveted stand-up fighting crown. Uh, he'd been out of MMA for three years at the time, of Shamrock versus Baroni and, and taking on Buentello in his first bout back uh, inside the hexagon would be a, a pretty tall task. The headhunter, he had won two straight in strike force, beating Tank Abbott in a headline bout the previous October, and then Warpath Villarreal at triple threat. Overall, he had won nine of his previous 10 fights. Williams, uh, to open the bout, did something that I found pretty surprising. Uh, he went for a Greco-Roman clinch takedown less than 30 seconds into the fight. Buentello got up pretty quickly, but but Williams did get some decent strikes in. Lots of lots of clinch clinching and grabbing uh, from Williams throughout the the round, with the ref having to restart the fighters from the clinch position against the cage more than once. So honestly, pretty boring first round uh, overall. Uh, probably would have to give it to Williams for being more aggressive and getting that takedown, but none of it would matter. Uh, as in the the second round, uh, as with the Semtex Bank fight, it was over pretty quickly. Getting into that second frame, Buentello caught Williams in the eye with an upper uppercut, and he hit the deck. The ref stepped in, uh, and that was it. And it was pretty clear that this was not a situation where he'd been knocked out. He got hit in the eye, uh, very legally, got hit in the eye with a punch, and you don't see that happen very often. It's usually fingers going in the eye, but this was a, a, a clean punch to the eye, and Williams wasn't able to continue. And and Buentello tries to follow up, but that is that is all she wrote yeah but tell starting to grow on me a little bit because you know he's this big guy and he's you know he doesn't look physically intimidating like a lot of the heavyweights he's big no, it looks strong. like it looks like a, it looks like a construction fighter yeah or, you know, i'm he, sorry a construction worker not a construction <laughs> fighter yeah yeah no, i know what you meant but yeah he looks like you know a guy who uh you know he's a tough guy but not necessarily somebody who you look at me like damn i need to hit the gym because i want to look like that so but it's it's also I wonder what he could have been had he had a little bit maybe more discipline a little more conditioning and he might have been maybe one of these heavyweights that was able to ascend to the next level because he had pretty good knockout power and you know yeah. he did have decent boxing and he did move really well for his size so I know it's just one of those things of you just wonder hey dude what if, what if yeah why didn't you step it up just slightly you know a little bit what was going on yeah and i gotta say buentello was one of my favorites at this time because exactly what you're describing he looked like somebody you know he just looked like an everyman and i've always been attracted to that as far as like who are my favorite athletes because it, it feels like somebody that you can connect with somebody that you can 
you know, be on equal footing with. And I actually, I actually talked with him. I, I tried to work with Buentello when I was first getting going in MMA and it ended up not going where, but going anywhere. Uh, and I actually, I've tried to reach out to him for this podcast multiple times. I'm going to try again, mm-hmm. uh, but he has never gotten back to me despite calls, emails, and texts. Uh, he's never gotten back to me. So he may not be interested in, in, uh, you know, and talking about his time in Strike Force, I know he didn't have a great parting of the ways with Scott Coker, um, which we'll get to eventually. Hmm. Uh, one of the few times that I've I've heard kind of a you know a negative um, between a fighter and 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 Coker that wasn't resolved. Um, but but yeah, he I totally totally with you on what you're saying. Yeah. Um, but Williams would be uh, Carter Williams would be one and done with Strike Force. He would lose three of his last four to end his MMA career at four and five. Uh, his final win actually would be ironically would come against the aforementioned Warpath. So they do have a, a an opponent in common. Uh, Buentello's next bout would be later in 2007 with Strike Force against Alistair Overeem for the promotion's inaugural heavyweight title. Uh, so we'll be talking about more about him in the future. All right, we are to Kung Lee. He finishes Tony the Freak Frickland with a TKO via punches at 25 seconds of the third round. Uh, Lee and Frickland were, were two fighters on opposite paths in their careers coming into this bout. Lee was coming off his TKO victory over Jason Von Flew at triple threat and was building towards superstardom while Frickland, uh, you know, had lost two straight, including his last fight against Bang Ludwig at triple threat. Uh, Lee, you know, beating beating Frickland would be another solid notch in his belt against a, a you know a very experienced opponent. So watching this fight, it was really cool to see the pride fighting uh, style entrances for both Fricklin and Lee. It really takes me back. I love watching that kind of thing. Uh, some signature flashy kicks early on from Kung to start the first round, including an axe kick attempt, which you don't see very much. Uh, nothing really landed. Big chance for Kung. Obviously, the San Jose crowd was firmly in his corner. Uh, really surprising that Fricklin didn't go for a takedown. Uh, none of the shots Kung was firing appeared to be landing flush, but but they had to be adding up, and it was surprised that you know surprised the freak didn't try to take it down uh with just over two minutes left kung lands a a nice right hand that fricklin tries to shake off but kung follows it up with a kind of a glancing right hand that drops uh full uh fully drops the freak referee herb dean almost steps in to stop the bout you could see him kind of doing that little uh toe you know tap dance about whether or not to jump in uh but he does not uh, but uh, Fricklin is able to get get back up pretty quickly. Kong starts nailing Fricklin pretty much at will with a wide array of kicks. Very impressive to watch. Clearly a 10-9 round uh, for the San Jose favorite, maybe even a 10-8 round. Uh, Fricklin finally went for a clinch early in the second, but Lee just shucks him right off. It was really good to, you know, it was a really good move on his part. Uh, Fricklin is more aggressive on the feet in the second round, uh, especially as it wears on, but Kung is shown his evasiveness, if I can (laughs) say that word. Uh, It was really on full display. Very impressive to watch. Another round for Kung. And then early in the third, Kung lands a a left body kick, finally gets through with that. You could see it hit right in that famous boss rooting liver spot. And, uh, and and Fricklin's hurt. Lee follows up with some strikes, and that's all she wrote. Very impressive showing by Kung. Fricklin really never really got out of the gates, never really showed very much. Uh, and it's interesting, during the fight, during the fight uh, you can note that the commentators kind of plant the first seeds of a Kung, a future Kung-Shamrock match, uh, with Frank being quoted as saying, fighting Phil Baroni was like fighting Lee on his day off. So kind of a, you know, we're already looking to the future here, but, but definitely a very strong showing from Kung Lee. Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've talked about Lee Kung Lee a lot. He is just spectacular here. This guy, his kicks, they're, they're so impressive to watch. He was throwing kicks like most guys throw punches in terms of the, the busyness of it. Like it, it was as natural for Kung in this fight in particular 
to throw a kick like he was throwing a jab or something or like he was throwing a left hook. I mean, this guy was so special. He's so unique. And I haven't really seen a, a kickboxer like that be that successful in MMA. I mean, roundhouse kicks. He's throwing axe kicks. Uh, he's just super impressive. And, you know, he throw when he throws, you know, a lot of MMA fighters, you know, a lot of those AKA guys, they will, you know, they kick really hard. And a lot of them will use it for distance, for spacing. Uh, you know, they're, they're using it to sort of, uh, you know, sort of set up for something else. Uh, they're trying to catch you when you're not looking. But, but Kung Lee was really trying to knock you out with every kick. And I remember when I, when I interviewed him back in the day, when I would talk to him about this, like, how do you do that? And he would just talk about how, how hard that was because it would take so much out of him. That I mean, it was so exhausting for him to kick like that every time, and it would affect his uh, his um, stamina going later into the fight. And we saw that. We'll see that with uh, Scott Smith later. But I mean, I, I I just never seen a guy who was like that gutsy. I mean, this is the same. This would be like a football quarterback first and ten, you know, at the zone twenty, throwing it in the end zone every time just constantly trying to do that. And I sort of watching Kung, I just get so disappointed because I just wish that Kung could have had a better MMA career. I wish that he could have maybe started a little bit younger in MMA. I wish he could have maybe moved over to the UFC sooner or he would have been able to be busier because this is a guy, he had such mainstream appeal and he could have been a movie star i mean he is a movie star to some degree but he could have been like a big time movie star where everyone on the street could have been like you know who kung lee is he's like this badass martial artist and he's not an actor he's like the real thing and it just made me think about a dream match with kung lee and anderson silva and what that would have been like i mean obviously anderson would have taken him down and probably had the huge advantage there but Kung Lee would have done a lot of damage before it ever got there. But I mean, I just, I just really like Kung Lee and I just sort of wish that his promoters would have handled him differently. I think Scott Coker did a, did a good job with him, obviously. And I think that in the UFC, it was not the best sort of outcome. They didn't match him up in the right fights. I don't, you know, I have this whole theory of like, a lot of these big uh, strike force stars came over and I sort of felt like they were set up to fail to some degree. Some of the guys broke the mold there, obviously, Daniel Cormier, Luke Rockhold a little bit. But um, I just didn't like how he was matched up. These are not good matchups for him. Uh, and in this fight, he, he destroyed Fricklin. Like just the accumulation of kicks was amazing. And he by the time it was over, I mean, yes, that was an amazing liver shot, but the guy was done. I mean, it was just like, that was just like the last thing. Like, forget it. I'm out. I can't even move now. I'm out of this fight, you know? And so I was just super impressed. And, and just Kung Lee is just so such an amazing fighter. I feel like I would have loved to have seen him fight a few more times. I, just, I think he was born 10 years too early. You know, it, it's, I, I think, you know, if he, if he gotten into MMA before 2006, um, 
you know, he would have been started at the bottom in in UFC because, you know, he was built up as a local star in Force. You know, that wouldn't have happened in the UFC. So, you know, and I think Coker tried to bring him along and give him, you know, bigger and bigger names. And I, I think, yeah, I, I think he handled his career as best as he could. But he had a lot of miles on his body already at that point. You know, he would deal with injuries. And, and even the UFC, I mean, I just quickly looked up his record and who he fought in the UFC. I mean, they put him with Vanderlei Silva. I mean, who's better for him to fight against than another guy that's going to probably not shoot in and take him down. You know, he fought <laughs> Rich Rich Franklin, another, you know, stand-up guy. You know, mm-hmm. Michael Bisping, not, not you know, a jiu-jitsu master. So I think they tried to put him in with guys that he could, you know, that he would put on fireworks-type shows with. And, and you know, he did have some memorable uh, moments. But, but yeah, I just – I think it's just he had so many miles on his body from Sanchao and – you know, kickboxing and, you know, all that stuff. By the time he got into MMA, you know, he, he had already kind of, yeah, like he had already kind of used up a lot of whatever capital he might have had, you know, in his body. He'd been competing for so long that it's, yeah, your your body's going to start falling apart. So yeah. it, it's, you know, it's it's hard to say. I mean, he's so he's 48 right now, and it, as it stands in 2020, he's 48. So 10 years ago, 15 years ago, he's 33. So he's like 34, you know, 34 when he starts, when he gets into MMA. He was That's 35 right. years old. Okay. When he, uh, this fight that we're okay, talking so, about. So, That's right. old. So, that's old. Yeah, that's to, that's know. old for M. That's old for combat sports. You yeah. know, that's that's old to just begin. So he didn't have. This is like a guy signing with WWE when they're you know thirty six or thirty seven. Like like a guy like Cain uh, Velasquez. You know, he's thirty eight, and he's not going to have a, a twenty year career or a fifteen year career or a ten year career in wrestling in in WWE if he does resign with them or whatever ends up happening, because he's got so many miles on his body, so many injuries already. He'll be lucky to get a, you know, a three, four year run, you know, and that's just, and I'm not saying that as, you know, any sort of knock against him at all. It's just father time, you know, father time does no jobs for anybody, you know, they didn't lay down for anybody. So it's just the way that it is. And, and yeah, I just, I feel like if he had been 20, you know, 25 instead of 35, when he got into the sport, then, it, you know, or 24 instead of 34, when he got into the sport, it would have been a much different situation. And I think even with, with his background, yeah, he would have had to really start training jujitsu, but with his wrestling uh, and his ability to his takedown defense and all that stuff, I, I think he'd do well, even the, you know, I don't, you know, I think he'd do well even in the UFC today. So, um, you know, imagine if he had 10 more years and actually had trained, you know, besides wrestling and chain train submission. So, yeah, kind of one of those what if things, but but yeah. Um, Lee would compete for Strike Force again later in 2007. Obviously, would have several more fights with the promotion, uh, so we'll be talking to uh, talking about him. And again, he's agreed to come on the podcast, so hoping to talk to him soon. Uh, the freak would would be done with Strike Force after this bout, and actually would only compete in MMA one more time. Uh, he's fought to a split draw with Patrick Sinoble for Bellator in 2016, or I'm sorry, 2013. So six years after this event. And he ended his career uh, with a, a respectable 14-9-1 record. All right, so now we get to the Elite XC Middleweight Championship fight. Marillo Ninja Hua stopped smoking Joe Senor with punches at 105 of the second round. Uh, this would be the North American debut for Ninja Hua, who was, of course, known to hardcore MMA fans uh, for his run in Pride FC. It actually lost its you look at his record, he's actually lost 
most of his bouts against high-level competition, going down in defeat to Dan Henderson, uh, Ricardo Arona, Kevin Randleman, Sergey Heritanov, and Rampage Jackson. But a lot of these guys were bigger than him, so that should come in. You know, that should come into to factor. And then also, most of those fights he'd lost by decision or by cut. So. Uh, you know, 13-7-1 record coming into this bout. De- Ninja, definitely a rep- reputable fighter known for his toughness and his skill. Uh, Villasenor was actually more experienced than Ninja coming into the fight. He had a 23-5 and record. Uh, he'd lost to Robbie Lawler, v- Robbie Lawler via highlight reel uh, flying knee in 2006 in pride, but had rebounded with unanimous decision victory over UFC vet uh, David Loazzo at Elite XC Destiny. All right, there is video of this fight, so I did get, did get to watch it. Uh, Via Senor staggered Ninja with a left hook early on and took it, and then uh, Ninja took it to the ground. Joey got a, a, via, a, a guillotine in, but but Ninja was able to get out of it. Joey got some strikes on the ground before the fight moved back to his feet, and then Hua actually gets a takedown, having fully recovered from that early left hook. Quite a pace to that first round, lots of back-and-forth action, uh, nothing really being kept in reserve for a potential five-round fight. Ninja was clearly superior on the mat and got Got several takedowns, likely securing uh, the first round. Then in the second round, Hua starts starching uh, via Senor with right hands early on, and that ends up being his undoing. Uh, Ninja lands a, a right hand, a straight right, and via Senor is unable to defend himself properly from some ground uh, follow-up ground strikes. I will say Villasenor looked pretty tired, and I think that likely, I think being tired out likely had something to do with him not being able to to keep going. But Marilla Ninja Hua is your, your first ever Elite XC middleweight champion and a really strong, really, really strong showing for the Brazilian. And, and you know, really he was very emotional when Gary Shaw, the promoter of Elite XC, presented him with the title belt uh, afterwards. But but just a good showing for him. Uh, Villasenor would go on to compete several times for Strike Force after this bout, so we'll be discussing him more in the future yeah via senor was uh he's a fun fighter to watch at times he was not super refined or technical but he did give his all um he came out like a little bit too hot in this fight like ronda rousey or something like he he was out of his game plan really quick and then he got tired and then he fought sloppy and we know how that happens He's sort of like a, a lower, you know, caliber version of a Josh Thompson or Gilbert Melendez in that, you know, he tries. He puts in a lot of effort and uh, he's exciting to watch, especially when he was in there with a fighter who was of equal or he was uh, better than. He would definitely have more confidence. Uh, but, you know, he's definitely, if you're watching Strike Force and you're sort of getting into this company, uh, you're he's a familiar face. You know, he's a guy who you would see on these shows. And, uh, you know, he was just kind of like your good journeyman uh, fighter. Yeah, kind of a mid-card guy, you know, in, in wrestling. Uh, I couldn't stand him because I hated his hair. He had his, like, his head buzzed except for like that like kind of rat tail in the front. Mm-hmm. I hated that. I could not stand that. So, yeah, yeah. never a fan. <laughs> uh, Ninja, for his part, he would not compete inside the Hexagon again. He was done in Strike Force. Uh, and, again, as we said, he was he was an Elite XC contracted fighter. So, you know, that that's not a surprise. Uh, he would fight uh, for Elite XC several more times before going over to Dream, uh, which would kind of be the pride replacement in Japan. I fought for some other promotions, and he would retire in 2012 with a record of 20. 13 and one, uh, leaving a, a solid legacy, you know, some title wins, some high profile bouts. So somebody that will go down in history. 
All right, we are to the main event, and we have got a lot to get to on this. This is very interesting. Frank Shamrock puts Phil Baroni to sleep with a rear naked choke at 415 of the second round in a bout for the Strikeforce Middleweight Championship. Uh, this would be Shamrock's return to the, the Strikeforce Hexagon after not competing for the promotion since his inaugural event. Uh, he was coming off a DQ loss to Henzo Gracie at Elite XC Destiny, having landed multiple illegal knees to Henzo's head on the ground. Uh, so he, you know, regardless, he needed a win here. Uh, Baroni was 10 and seven coming into the bout. He had had a six fight run in pride. Uh, you know, his, his style entertaining, you know, very entertaining entrances going for the knockout. He was tailor made for Japan and he'd actually built up a pretty big profile for himself over there. Uh, he'd only fought Japanese fighter while he was in pride, uh, Japanese fighters while he was in pride for whatever that's worth. Uh, he'd also had a long run in the UFC before his time in pride fought seven times there and got a uh, a signature win uh, over former UFC champ Dave Manet in 2002. Uh, unfortunately for the Naiba, uh, he'd lost four straight UFC bouts to to end his time with the promotion. Josh, let me ask you, do you remember uh, I'll describe it. I won't put you on I'll put you on the spot but not as much. Uh, there <laughs> the Dave Manet fight was uh, one where Baroni ended very quickly in the first round. Baroni got Manet against the fence and just started throwing right hands and left hands and he was throwing these piston like shots to Manet's face who is knocked out. He is out, but he's hitting him so fast and so hard that Manet, Manet is being basically pinned against the cage by by these punches and and then finally the referee jumps in and I was I say finally it's not like it went on for like 20 seconds or anything but the the referee jumps in and Baroni you know just reacts with euphoria I mean that is if you were I'm sure if you were to ask him what's your favorite win it's got to be that one because it's you know over a UFC middleweight you know middleweight champ a former middleweight champ and just like signature signature win just pinned him up against the the cage with with strikes so did you it was using a lot of UFC highlights do you remember that did you ever see that I never saw that fight it reminds me of the Popeye movie from the 80s though where Popeye <laughs> would Robin Williams know, one. exactly you know he just clubbed these guys but definitely want to want to check that out yeah you should you should look it up it's like uh, I think the fight's like 35 seconds long so it's it's worth uh, a look up uh, but the build up to this fight absolutely legendary Shamrock had actually released some videos on YouTube so we're talking 2007. That's right. That's how long YouTube's been around. Uh, but he put out some some videos making fun of Baroni, you know, building up the fight. Uh, and as you know, as we've discussed before, Shamrock truly the the consummate uh, self promoter. But but that brings us to the to the bout itself. You know, I love uh, Frank Shamrock. He's 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 amazing, and his persona is like probably how I would be if I were an MMA fighter. I'd just be a total, you know, jerk <laughs> as my character. But oh, good to know. Good to know. Hey, you know, you got to sell the tickets, right? So, so, but, but Jimmy Lennon Jr. and Al Shamrock as the pioneer and prototype of modern MMA. And that's like beautiful on one hand and the other hand, it's like, holy cow. You know, it's I, that, like, you know, you say like, you know, that, that actually comes across as a Mauro Ronaldo line. That's, you know, the, the, it sounds like something more, I'm not saying Mauro like wrote that, you know, for Jimmy Lennon Jr. But the right. pioneer and prototype of modern MMA, MMA with the, the alliteration there, that just, honestly, it sounds more like a Mauro Ronaldo thing well, to me. It was clearly a line fed to him. I don't know if Frank wrote it or somebody, but I mean, they're trying to make Frank sound like the dude, the main guy of MMA. And uh, it's so weird to have an announcer go that far in the yeah. introduction That's true. To, say, to say that. But uh, apparently, according to Figure Four Weekly, both of these guys were badly injured coming into the fight. 
Shamrock apparently tore his ACL before the fight and Baroni had torn his groin. And so I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about what you know about leading up to that, but obviously this was a big fight and to pull out when you're hungry and you know, you're going to have a big payday and you may not get this again. You know, you're going to try to do everything you can. And both these guys are, are born fighters. So I'm not surprised that they would continue. Also in figure four weekly, they said that Dana White promised Baroni he would sign him to one more fight in the UFC if he knocked Shamrock out. So maybe Baroni had a greater incentive to try to do something there. That's a big incentive for sure. Uh, And we will talk about about both their injuries uh, more because they both delve into them after the the bout. Uh, But let's jump into it. So Baroni starts off the fight really hot, firing on all cylinders while winging punches. Shamrock weathers the storm but but does get taken down. Uh, But he's back up quickly. Uh, But but definitely a good start for Baroni. Yeah, Baroni was all in. And I, I just want to make the point that Baroni's like physique is amazing. I mean, this guy is just like chiseled out of stone. But don't ever make the mistake of thinking that someone who looks like that is also a good fighter. They very much can be. Baroni is a good fighter. Let me rephrase that. Don't ever make the mistake that that means that they're unbeatable because when you carry around a lot of muscle like that, it definitely slows you down. And it, requir- Baroni, it, re- it requires a lot of oxygen. It, it takes a yeah. lot more cardio. And so Baroni, like he went all out, but he seemed to get really tired really quickly. And sort of Frank's also chiseled out of stone, but it's he's got a different kind of physique. And, and obviously he's got a way great cardio, Frank does. So it looked to me like Baroni just kind of blew it a little bit after he, he went all out and uh, he pressured him and he threw all those punches. And then here we are, he's slow now and he's tired. Uh, Baroni had a little bit of help with that physique, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. Uh, but then things got got really interesting. Uh, Shamrock lands two right hands to Baroni, and you could see that Shamrock was visually gaining confidence. Uh, he then does something that is – it's one of my – I'm not a huge fan of taunting. I'm just not a huge fan of taunting in uh, in, in 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 pro fighting. I'm just not. Uh, but this one I really liked it for whatever reason. Uh Shamrock smiles, points at Baroni, and then makes the kind of night-night hand motion where you you know you fold your hands and put them next to your cheek to sh- signify that he was going to be uh, putting Baroni out and, and kind of called his shot, so to speak. And and you know he ends up sleep. Uh, spoiler alert: he ends up putting <laughs> him to sleep. Uh, but Shamrock proceeds to land a, a three-piece combo, so to speak, and puts the knife on his back against the cage, uh, fulfilling that prophecy by saying he was going to knock you know knock him down, but he doesn't knock him out. Uh, at least not here. Shamrock rushes in, grabs a choke, and then lets the net go and starts raining down some strikes. Yeah, to your point about the night-night thing, it's something that you would see in pro wrestling. It's sort of like, you know, the Undertaker stopping and deciding to run his thumb across his neck or something, and you're just like, that would never happen in a real fight. Well, here it happened (laughs) in a real fight because, uh, you know, Shamrock's basically just like taunting him to the point where, I mean... How embarrassing would it be? I mean, we, we saw this with Chris Weidman and Anderson Silva, that taunting. What, what if Baroni would have just knocked him out at that moment? It's such a gutsy, uh, uh, courageous, but also irresponsible move all at the same time. And when it works, 
You're like, holy cow, I can't believe Frank just did this to this guy. Get in his head and sort of just zaps whatever confidence Brony might be having at that moment. Um, I love Mauro Ranello, so can I just say that I'm so happy that they combined with Elite XC for this co-promotion era because he's my favorite MMA announcer, and you're probably not surprised about that, Phil. But, no. I mean, I love his... Uh, is the way he calls fights. I mean, he gets so excited. It's like he's coming off his couch. He's like, when I'm watching fights, I'm just like yelling stuff. Like That's how he is, but he's really articulate and he always has the phrasing down and he's got just this incredible way of making it feel like it's it's kind of like he just came up with this. It's so natural and unscripted. Obviously, he's got his catchphrases that he says over and over. But this elevated, I think, the strike force commentary to a whole new level. So in this, right, he said right after Frank nails him and it looks like Baroni's out, you know, all of a sudden Morrow starts almost rooting for Baroni. He's like, it ain't over until the bell rings. Like Yogi Berra, another New Yorker, used to say, it ain't over till it's over. Like, he's still just like, he's so in it, you know? And, and it's, yeah. it's just so exciting. I don't know. I think Morrow is he's the best pro wrestling announcer. He's the best MMA. Um, this guy is one of the reasons why I fell in love with Strike Force. One of the many reasons, because he started calling these, these fights. And then, by contrast, Goldberg. <laughs> so Morrow just starts comparing this... Guy who's almost knocked out and saying, Baroni is still alive. And then Goldberg, seconds later, says, it looks like they're both having a good time in there, gentlemen. <laughs> We're witnessing history yeah. <laughs> in this, like, very yeah, conversational voice. Yeah. And uh, so, I don't know. I don't, I don't know you have any thoughts on Morrow, but I, I, oh, I, yeah. he's great. I, lo I love Morrow. And I got to I actually, I don't want to say I got to know him. I got to work with him a little bit through Frank Shamrock uh, when I was working in MMA before. And sorry to... Hope that doesn't turn into like a drinking game or something like every time Phil talks about his, you know, time in MMA, you know, whatever. Uh, I, I don't want it to get it. I don't, I don't want it to get annoying, but you know, it, I, I think it's cool to hear. I hope it's cool to hear, you know, the, the kind of the little anecdotes, but yeah, I, I worked with Frank a little bit and he actually connected me with Morrow and wanted me to help build up Morrow. And I, I very much regret. I've almost wanted to apologize tomorrow. Cause I just, I wasn't experienced enough. I didn't know what I was doing. And, and I really wish that I did. Cause I, I feel like, you know, could have done something, but he, you know, he's obviously, you know, built up this persona as the bipolar rock and roller. And, um, you know, he, he's very, obviously very much a mental health advocate as far and then, which is all great. And he just, as we record this, he just left WWE not long ago. And I'm hoping, you know, he ends up in, in another, you know, maybe in AEW or something, but he's obviously part of the Bellator team and, you know, he does Showtime boxing and he does K1. I mean, he's, you know, he's got to be the all around greatest combat sports announcer of all time. I mean, just for calling kickboxing, MMA, pro wrestling and uh, pro boxing. I mean, who else can lay claim to being able to do all that as effectively as him? I, nobody, um, you know, he's uh, Jim Ross is in his prime is still my favorite pro wrestling announcer of all time, but uh, I love Morrow and I think he's great. I, I love watching him. You know, I loved watching him do commentary for, for NXT. Uh, I think he's great for that role. I, you know, I can see why some people get turned off by him because he can be so loud and, and you know, uh, catchphrasey, you know. I mean, he loves Mamma Mia and his, you know, his all his catchphrases and all that stuff. And I can see why people could be turned off by that. 
but I, I, yeah, personally, I'm a huge fan of his. I really hope, I, I know he's taking care of his mom at this point, but I, I really hope we can have him on the podcast at some point. Cause I, I would just love to, you know, get his take on, on, you know, his time in the promotion, but I'm sure we'll be talking about him more in the future regardless. All right. And then something really weird happens. Shamrock inexplicably hits Baroni in the back of the head twice. And uh, Dana White's favorite referee, Steve Mazzucati, uh pauses the fight, immediately takes a point away from Shamrock, which was kind of weird. I thought he was a little trigger happy uh, in, in taking a point away that quickly. Um, maybe, you know, Shamrock's DQ loss in his last fight maybe had Mazzucati on guard or maybe he just made a bad decision or, you know, whatever it was. But regardless, Baroni gets some, some much-needed time to recover. But then either bravely or, or dumbly or stupidly, he – Maybe both. He, he doesn't take very much time, and the fight gets restarted really quickly. I, I will say, you know, we, we know now that he had a torn groin, so maybe he realized that, you know, if he stops moving that it's going to seize up and he won't be able to continue on. But but the fight, regardless of the reasoning, the fight gets restarted. Baroni gets another takedown, uh, though Frank, Frank seemed, you know, to really have more pulled guard for this one, and he was much more active from the bottom than, than Baroni was from the top. And Phil just did not look good. He wasn't moving very much. No head movement on his feet, probably gassing, as you mentioned. Uh, kind of a sitting duck for Frank, and, and Lan- Shamrock lands some more strikes, and he's hurting Baroni more and more as the uh, as the round closes. Yeah, and Morrow was really paying in, playing into the whole drama of this. He's sort of talking about how Baroni probably had not recovered from the rabbit punches, and it was just sort of interesting that he was doing that character development during the actual match. And, you know, I just want to say, like, Frank's Muay Thai knees, super impressive. I mean, this guy was hitting him. So if you got a big guy who's gassing out and you're hitting him right in the sternum with your knees, I mean, that is just so devastating. So that goes to Frank's IQ, his his fight IQ in there. And then we've got Moro, who's just calling this match just gold. You know, he's like, unbelievable warfare. This is what mixed martial arts is all about. I mean, he's just got this energy that makes this fight seem so much better. I mean, it is exciting and it's great that he is elevating it and he's trying to let everybody know that this is a big deal. You know, he had lots of great lines. He's like, the atmosphere is as electric as Thomas Edison's basement, which I'm like, who the hell thinks of that? Come on. That's a great line. So, uh, you know, it was great. And I just, like, Frank's talking in this fight was yeah. unreal. I mean, I wish he would, they were mic'd or something because I'd love to have known what he was saying in this. Yeah, I don't know if he was, you know, calling spots or, <laughs> or what as far as, all right, now we're going to do this. I don't I don't think so. But, yeah, he was definitely doing a lot of talking, a lot of gesturing um, from Frank in that first round. And because of the point deduction is either a 9-9 or a 9-8 round. Um, I, I would have called it a 9-8 round. Um, but, it, yeah, it was a pretty – Pretty decisive, uh, pretty decisive round for for Shamrock. He showed showed made a really good showing. And going back to Goldberg, Morrow asked him, "How much of a factor do you think the point oh, deduction oh, yeah. is going to have?" Oh yeah, yeah. And Goldberg inexplicably responds, "I don't think it's going to be much of a factor. If anything, it just evened up the round." <laughs> well, that's exactly the definition of a factor. Was that yeah. this guy just totally, you know, won that the round. is a fa- that would be a factor. Yes, Mr. Goldberg. <laughs> and yes. you know, now it's this 
even round. Apparently Goldberg was slamming his head into the dressing room even in 2007 <laughs> before his wrestling matches, yeah. before he was calling fights. <laughs> yeah, not, not not really showing his uh, math chops or, or, you know, fight acumen there very much. Uh, but in the second round, Baroni did start to look a bit better. Both fighters acquitted themselves pretty well on the feet, uh, and the round was much more even. That is until Shamrock lands a really nice combo that drops Baroni. Uh, he sh- shoots in for a, uh, Baroni shoots in for a takedown, but Frank sprawls. That turns into Frank uh, being able to take Baroni's back. He sinks in a rear naked choke, and it puts Baroni out, and and we have a winner. That was quite the ending to that fight. I felt like Baroni was. He was landing some hard shots, and Frank was kind of fading a little bit. But Roney was just exhausted, and those Muay Thai knees, and Frank just jumped on him, and it, and it was over. I mean, this I don't think this fight would have gone the distance. If Roney didn't fade, I mean, something would have happened because Frank was tiring as well. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And again, we'll talk about their injuries afterwards. Uh, Frank wasn't very sportsmanlike. Immediately after Mazzagotti stops it, he pushes the unconscious Baroni off of him with both his hand and his leg. And I personally was, hey, the fight's over. The guy's out. I, I was not a fan of that move at all. And he he made a, I read an interview with him later on, and he made a comment about, like, basically Frank was crushing him with his weight. And I think it was said very tongue in cheek that, you know, basically like giving an excuse for why he had to push him off. him. I, you know, of course, I mean, he did have a torn up knee, so, you know, maybe, but, but yeah, I, I, I wasn't really a big fan of that move. Yeah. And it might've been one of those things that kind of turned people against Frank. Uh, by the time he would go in there against Kung Lee, uh, I was there and Kung Lee to me was the favorite at that time. I think he had more supporters than Shamrock, at least, at, you know, in the Shark Tank. But it might have been a little bit of a, a heel turn, you know. It's like when uh, Misha Tate goes to shake Ronda's hand and Ronda just snubs her and looks the other way and all of a sudden they're booing her. I mean, it, that's the kind of stuff you don't want to do. The fight's over, just, you know, make up and move on. Yeah, or not even make up, just show respect, you yeah. know. So, um, but you really got to hand it to Baroni. I mean, especially knowing that he had torn his groin. I mean, he hangs tough. He he goes over to shake uh, Shamrock's hand after the fight, and they kind of shake. But Shamrock's clearly in a lot of pain. Uh, the commentators, um, you know, they did tell us during the fight that Shamrock had injured his knee. So that you know that was probably it. But he was definitely in a lot of pain. Uh, but but a big win for Shamrock, especially coming off. Uh, the DQ loss to Henzo Gracie. Uh, both fighters will be back in Strike Force in the future, uh, so we'll be discussing them both. I will mention this is actually Shamrock's last uh, last MMA win. This is the last MMA where he would lose two more bouts, uh, and that would be it. Uh, but but yeah, that was you know. So that's Shamrock versus Gracie. Um, I do want to mention uh, I, I watched a couple post fight interviews with both Baroni and Shamrock. Uh, Baroni was right after the bout in the dressing room. Shamrock's uh, was the week after the fight. Uh, Baroni, as you would expect, was pretty down. Uh, tells Bill Goldberg that Shamrock was as advertised, essentially. And he did talk about his torn torn groin and then uh, did something uh, weird. And he showed it to Goldberg, uh, who was not interested in looking at the man's package. Uh, so <laughs> that happened. Congratulations, Goldberg, on that. Uh, and then Shamrock posted like a seven-minute interview um, where he talked about how he had torn up his knee a week or so before the fight. It was like his his MCL and his ACL, and the doctor thought it might be his PCL too. Um, so 
he knew that he was going to have to stick to boxing coming into the fight because he couldn't go for takedowns. Uh, he trained with Dan Henderson and Tim, Team Quest to kind of change things up. Uh, and he talked about the fight itself as well as the training. He talked about uh, without his knee being healthy, he just couldn't run or train much cardio. And and as you uh, talked about, Josh, that, that I'm sure affected – or not, I'm sure he said it affected his cardio. It affected him in the fight. So he was definitely getting tired. He talked about the future, saying he planned to rematch Henzo next, which would never happen. Uh, and he was asked by the interviewer if he would be fighting for the UFC, and he said that he would not be fighting for the, quote, you fight cheap organization, uh, <laughs> as, as, as he put it. Uh, and then lastly, you know, to his credit, he did tip his hat to Barone. He said some really great things about it and said he's a, he did a great job promoting and fighting and that, that he was a true mixed martial artist and that he's better than he maybe even thinks that he is and that, uh, you know, he'd brought, out the, he'd brought out the best in Frank Shamrock. So he was very, uh, you know, congratulatory of his opponent. So that was good to see. Uh, but I don't know if he would have felt this way if he knew this information. Barone would join Carter Williams in testing positive. Uh, after the fight, Baroni tested positive for two different steroids uh, and was suspended for a year. And Carter Williams would test positive for cocaine. Yeah. So not a good look on either fighter. And this goes back to what you were mentioned earlier about uh, what a great physique Baroni had. Well, mm-hmm. it seemed like he had some uh, some chemical assistance uh, <laughs> in making that happen, unfortunately. But overall, you know, that wraps things up for this event. I loved this event. I really wish that we could see the entire card. Um, but, you know, very entertaining. A lot of things progressed uh, within the promotion. You got Buentello, Thompson, Lee, and Shamrock getting their hands raised, which, you know, you're building up your strike four stars there. Uh, and then the Via, the Via Senor Ninja fight, you know, nothing for, doesn't do anything for Elite XC. I'm sorry, for Strike Force because they're both Elite XC fighters. Uh, but it was an entertaining fight. So, I really enjoyed it. And like I've said before, Shamrock Baroni is one of my favorite fights in terms of the buildup and then, you know, the actual fight itself, delivering on it with the entertainment value and all that stuff. You know, I could have done without some of Glazer's inane, you know, commentary <laughs> and some of the things Goldberg said, but I loved getting to hear uh, Morrow again. And, and so that was great. So overall, I think a really strong card, uh, especially, you know, for our first foray into pay-per-view and uh, you know, being nationally televised and all that stuff. I, I think the I think the promotion showed itself um, to be a player, and and I really really enjoyed it. So, Josh, uh, share your thoughts, and then we'll uh, we'll go ahead and wrap things up. Well, I gotta say, it must be really bad, you know, if you cheat, you use enhancements, and you lose. You know, yeah. which was the case. Which, what, let me jump in right there, real quick. Sorry, yeah. but I, I one of the things I've always watched that over the years of when guys test positive for things. I'd say 90 plus percent of the time they lose the fight. Like yeah. I, I don't remember a lot of times where guys have won. And now I'm not, I'm not including weed in that. I'm not including marijuana in that mm-hmm. because I don't think that's a performance enhancer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it doesn't make you fight better. Maybe you're more relaxed. So I guess it helps you in that sense, but that can also be a, a, a negative because you're, you know, you're not as, uh, active as you should be. So I don't count weed as, as you know, as far as that goes, but as far as like guys do, doing steroids, um, you know, that to me, or, or some sort of performance enhancer, like, uh, you know, um, uh, what, what's it called? H, uh, HGH and, mm-hmm. you know, TRT and stuff like that. By and large, those guys lose the fights and this was a, the, the lose those fights. And that was, that was, you know, there's an example of that here. Yeah, you know, remember Chael Sonnen, you know, with the TRT yep, high absolutely. levels, he almost yep. pulled off v- that Vitor, Be- Vitor Belfort, mm-hmm. um, you know, guys like that, yep. Yeah, but I, I thought this was a really good show, and it was 
Strike Force's debut on that national stage through the co-promotion. And it was a really good introduction because you have Frank winning in spectacular fashion and you got Varro Anello and it's that CBS sort of Showtime era that is birthing. And that was really cool. I it's also, it's sort of the end of the Frank Shamrock era too. Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of ways, he kind of, he, kind of passes the torch in his next fight. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he got old really quick. I mean, he was already old, but he, you know, he, he was branded well in terms of, you know, his first couple fights and, and then, you know, it goes up there at Kung and Kung just like breaks his arm. And, and, well, then, to, and to be fair, he fought guys that were inferior to him, you know, Caesar yeah. and, and, and Phil, you know, they're yeah. just, they're not on the same level. So yeah, to be fair, you know, they, they'd set him up and, and, Got him, you know, got him where he needed to be. And Kung wouldn't, I mean, from an experience perspective, definitely not on its level. From a talent perspective, of course, and it, you know, it won out. But yeah, Frank was older, no, no doubt about that. And you know, we talk about. I'm sorry for interrupting you, but mm-hmm. we talk about, um, you know, what might have been. You know, if if Frank hadn't sat out those, you know, those those years that he did, what was it, 99 to 03 or whatever it was, 2000 to 03. Yeah. Man, who who knows? You know, who knows what would have been? You know, and and um. Yeah, he, who knows what he would have been. I mean, he's already one of the one-time great or one of the all-time greats, but maybe he is the best of all time if he doesn't take that time off. I mean, I, you know, nine nine losses on your record probably hard to be the the best ever, but um, you know, seven of those losses came before he got with AKA and and kind of his modern part of his career. It's, you know, he's definitely one of the greats, but but, you know, could have been the goat if he had stayed in the in the sport those years that he missed. Yeah, so I, I thought it was a good good show overall for, for those reasons. We're still seeing Kung Lee emerge as sort of the future of, of the company for a time being. And uh, it's it just, you know, Baroni, hell of a fight, lots of heart, and just back and forth. So, you know, I think we're about to enter sort of like the strike force really starts to turn it up a notch and gets really good with the type of uh, talent that it has, the type of production value that it has. And just the way that, uh, you know, we're seeing this company grow into this own sort of independent, strong, formidable MMA company. Yeah, 100%. And I'm looking forward to, to diving into this more in the future. But uh, Josh, appreciate your time. Um, we're going to go ahead and uh, ride off into the sunset. We hope that our, our fans, our listeners uh, stay safe and stay healthy. But with that, uh, we are going to bid you adieu and we will talk to you next time. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.